and welcome to the Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM, the sound of your glorious city, or in one of our appreciated radio syndicate partners across this patchwork land, or on the podcast at greenmajority.ca. I'm David Hostetter. We have Stefan Hostetter. Saren Kaster is back again, wonderfully. And Emma McIntosh, again from the National Observer, joins us. So thank you for being here yet again. Thanks for having me. And we are going to begin with our head in the clouds today. Y- yes, but can I give a can I give a shout out okay. beforehand? Uh, this is a, a sent to a, to us by a listener, uh, which is a story that I sort of we near the tail end of the of the week. Uh, so sent us this happened, and so we'll pop back cover next week. Um, but I want to give a shout out to Gregory uh, Gregory uh, McKelson. Uh, who is a tenured professor at McGill, uh, who recently quit McGill because of its refusal to divest. Mm. Uh, you know, standing up for his, he had been a sort of a helpful organizer within the community. And, uh, you know, to quit your tenured position in, in, in uh, uh, to basically in give away your climate president, to give up your, your sort of future of your, of your, of your profession that you've worked, some people have worked so hard to get to, uh, seems like it deserves, you know, putting, a, putting your, putting your money, quite literally, uh, where your mouth is. Mm. Um, and, it uh, once again sort of raises the stakes on on McGill's uh, requirement to actually get some divestment done. There so shout out to Gregory McKelson. Thank you for all the work that you do. Uh, just uh, it seemed like a fun opportunity for a fun piece of trivia history about the show. Uh, I'm not going to name names, and there's no chance they're listening. So this is just fun gossip. But over ten years ago, I had a co-manager of the show. They were, I believe, going to McGill. I might be wrong about that. But there was a teacher, a very famous teacher at a Canadian uh, university, I think it was at McGill, who was a scientist who was teaching their class that climate change was a hoax. That person left the Green Majority over that disagreement because they were very in, very committed to the show, hmm. but didn't agreed with it, had taken it from their professor that climate change wasn't real, and, and stopped working on the show over it. Wow. So I, I, that's a fun fact, but it's also like... Interesting to think about, right? It's not there. There really hasn't been a group thing, right? Over the over the sixteen years of this program, and just I think that's interesting for a number of reasons. Yeah, uh, but yeah. So uh, just a shout out there. Now we're starting with our head in the clouds. Take it away, Dave. Yes, our head is entering the beautiful clouds of this inevitably excellent decade that is coming upon us. So dad, meteorologist and climate correspondent Eric Holthouse published an article 10 days ago in The Correspondent in which he argues, quote, if words make worlds, then we urgently need to tell a new story about the climate crisis. He then presents a vision of the coming decade, compiled with the help of an informal Twitter poll in which we collectively take the radical action necessary to address the climate crisis. He begins with Adrienne Marie Brown, who writes, quote, once the imagination is unshackled, liberation is limitless. The idea is that we can alter our notion of what is possible through a societal effort of imagining better structures. The vision uh, can be said to represent a bridge between two methods of tackling the climate crisis, policy solutions on the one hand and a shift in societal consciousness on the other. In any case, as our problem becomes more radical and so do our solutions, the need for a reassessment of our values becomes more important. Thus, Holthouse uh, represents his vision of a positive story for the 2020s. First, he says that we must gain the courage to let go of the life we thought we were going to have. In 2020, we will acknowledge the necessity of passionately declaring the fact of the emergency. 
the intensity and urgency of the climate movement will inspire revolutionary policy. We will, he says, reinterpret human happiness. We will recognize that human, the human organism and Earth's ecosystems are part of the same thing. In 2021, a, a new U.S. president will embrace a Green New Deal. The public good is put before corporate profits. We will redefine democracy and freedom. By 2022, all actions will be seen as climate actions, and everything will be done with the knowledge of acting on behalf of the collective. This is not a blandly draconian leveling out or equalizing. It is, like Jean-Paul Sartre's existential conundrum that each person finds themselves in. Everyone must act with the knowledge that they represent the entirety of the human species. We are each one being, but we each symbolize humanity at large. Knowing this brings us integrity and authenticity, since it asks us to constantly evaluate our actions in light of our collective predicament. It also gives meaning and dignity to all of our deeds, and will help us see more clearly uh, which artifices should never have been built, or which have become obsolete. Holthouse writes, quote, We will begin the process of returning land to indigenous control. Indigenous people have for centuries effectively managed more than 80% of the world's biodiversity. The United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples provides a particularly effective model for how to uphold peaceful nation-to-nation -nation relationships while simultaneously building a world that works for everyone. We, as humans, have known how to do this for a very long time. We will remember how to do it again. We will finally reach peak global emissions. We will finally stop accelerating towards our own destruction. Perhaps oddly then, in 2023, Holthouse says that we will hold ecocide tribunals for fossil fuel executives in which they're charged with crimes against humanity. But importantly, he says we will prioritize our own psychological and emotional resilience. And this will allow us to have created by 2024 the, quote, moral and cultural infrastructure for rapid decarbonization of every aspect of our civilization. We will decrease global emissions 10% every year for the rest of the decade. We will begin electrifying everything, focused first, focusing first on eliminating the short-lived but more intensely heat-trapping pollutants like methane and nitrous oxide, protect intact forests, and plant new ones. By 2025, quote, we will have long begun seeing cars as death machines which steal half the surface area of our cities. We will begin to feel comfortable around each other in public again because we love each other and always have. End quote. Without cars, there will be a lot more space for fulfilling public life. In 2026, reality will become more important than virtuality, and this implies a new method of being in the world, since he implies not just a slowing down of the body, but a slowing down of perception, through which we learn to distinguish pointless fantasies from meaningful events. This is partly represented in Holthouse's positing of a rejection of the isolating tendencies of big tech, and big tech in general, and a triumph of real communities in which people are oriented towards goals larger than themselves. In 2027, regenerative agriculture is expanded and our economy's waste becomes its raw material in a new circularity. In 2028, we begin seeing survival as a human right, and the idea of growth for growth's sake is abandoned. Holthouse writes, quote, We will celebrate inefficiency. We will call it creativity. We will call it living. Our worth won't be tied to how much we can produce for people who are already rich. And by the end of 2029, we will have cut emissions in half globally and be on pace to end the prospect of catastrophic global warming. But more importantly, quote, We will have remade what it looks and feels like to be alive.
Yeah. And so this reminds me a little bit of the of the very classic, uh, and now perhaps, and it has been spoken of as never to be improved upon cartoon of a climate scientist that was now, this is decades old, of a climate scientist standing in front of a lecture hall with all of the things that the green transition would, would require, you know, like better living communities, stuff like that, and someone throws up their hand in the back of the, back of the uh, lecture hall and is like, but what happens if we make a better world and it turns out it's all a hoax? What if we're doing, what if we make a better world for nothing? Mm. Um, and we, we, I say that largely because of that sort of last line of what it looks like uh, to feel uh, and be alive, you know. There's a, there's two things here that I find particularly interesting. Um, I'm going to throw one to you, uh, Emma, mainly because I think there's a level of which, um, there's a level of which journalism and uh, journalists are the storytellers of the now, you know, like if historians are the people who sort of are telling the, the story in the back, the, the journalists in some ways are controlling uh, or are, are strongly influencing the, the narratives of how we live right now. And so this concept of the need to be telling different stories uh, and to be talking about things differently does uh, does seem, you know, Eric himself has been a journalist for many years, and so I think he sort of sees sees that in it. But I'm curious how you sort of see that uh, the role of journalism in climate action, you know. Right, yeah. I mean, I guess it, it does get hard because um, there is like an ethical boundary that we right. have to follow, right? Like I can't just say, here's what I think right. <laughs> is the best way to solve the climate crisis. But in that, that ethical boundary, there's power, right? When journalists start using the phrase climate emergency, that's because that's the reality. And a lot of people have like had a hem and a haw for like <laughs> a year or three about whether we should say that word. And, and so that thoughtfulness, I think, can be really helpful. Um, the concept already exists when it comes to solutions journalism, right. right? That's already something that we should be trying to do more often. And that people who are like me, I guess, lucky enough to do long-term journalism, get to think about. Mm -hmm. And so the infrastructure is already there. It's just a matter of using it. Right. Like, instead of doing one-offs about the latest, like, doom and gloom prediction, we can also start like this, telling stories about how we can save ourselves. Right. Yeah. And and the 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 other thing that strikes me about this, and I, it's something I, I, I talked about, I think, like, two years ago on the show. I got obsessed with this for, like, two months. And so I did a bunch of t thoughts about a bunch of stories about it. And then I, then I sort of lost the train is the idea of, and uh, of slowing down and doing less as a response to climate change. You know, the, the, the fact of like that slow living, uh, would inherently be less consumptive. Um, and, and that some of these uh, models of, of whether it's like, you know, there's, there's, a, there's all these models of different types of slow living that have people start incorporating in their lives and, and just what that would actually mean as a, as a climate action, you know, the idea that you are not consuming all the time, that you might just slowly be in a place or, or that you'd slow down and how much and how long you enjoyed your food, say, which is a big example. Um, and, and then, and then how that say transfers into even say the slow money movement, uh, with, with regards to trying to support sustainable farming. Like the idea that's like, I find it fascinating that one of the things he highlights here is the idea that slowing down is part of this change. Like part of this change is just us all as humanity, accepting the concept of being and moving slower in this world is I think something that we don't think about that much. And there was an article, I think this week or last week that was also making the pitch that a four day work week would be, a, would be also a climate action in part because again it would sort of slow down our, our days and our lives and 
And I think that there's a, I think that's, I think telling those kind of stories and thinking about that does a lot of, of some of the heavy lifting of people, helping people imagine what the world could look like in a non, you know, in, the, in a world that looks different than ours. And so I think these types of, uh, these types of things end up being super important. The and and so we are we have a very jam packed show so I'm not going to go too long uh, we don't have to, but you should read the article every, like it's this is one of those articles it's in uh, the correspondent uh, it's one of those articles that basically every person who uh, who I sort of really follow on Twitter uh, who who's like a climate head uh, was like posted this and it's like this is what I needed like it's it's a nice it's a nice chance to really believe in something for half a second you know give yourself the opportunity to live in a world where we actually do something and make it. Um, and um, we're now going to switch gears uh, to a very uh, to, to unfortunately the world that exists today, uh, and it's uh, much bleaker. But uh, let's let's switch into this. Uh, what, what, yeah, take it away, Dave. I mean, the facts itself themselves may be bleak, but the self evaluation is always always excellent. Sure. Sure. Yes, I agree. Good. <laughs> <laughs> so as we discussed last week. Uh, Canadian colonialism is continuing its theft of unceded indigenous territory in northern BC, as a court injunction has given the RCMP the right to forcibly evict Wet'suwet'en people off their own land in the name of getting liquid natural gas to the coast for export. The Wet'suwet'en then issued an eviction notice to the company uh, which the workers complied with. On the 12th of January, workers were allowed to pass through an indigenous blockade to do maintenance work on their empty camp. Hereditary chiefs stated at the time that they remained steadfast in their position, that no pipeline would be built on unceded Wet'suwet'en territory, and they would continue to uphold Wet'suwet'en law on these lands and ensure that their eviction order stands. As APTN News reports, the pipeline company Coastal Gaslink then publicized its discovery of a pile of felled trees, spare tires, and gasoline that had been placed by one of the roads as a potential defense against a police invasion, after which the RCMP opened a criminal investigation. The RCMP then repeated its tactics from last year, uh, setting up a roadblock on the 13th to control access to the area as they prepare to dismantle the Wet'suwet'en defense. Uh, Vice uh, quotes Indigenous spokesperson Molly Wickham as saying, quote, This is exactly what they did the last time before they raided. They set up an exclusion zone and they cut off all access, all internet access, all communications. And so we need to keep watch on what's going on right now. The RCMP claimed to be allowing anyone in as, they, as long as they comply with their identification process, but appear to have already been denying access to media and even people delivering critical supplies to people in the land defenders' camps. The RCMP, of course, claims to be upholding the rule of law, even though Canadian law contravenes the court injunction, since it was found in 1997 that these lands uh, had not been ceded to Canada. In addition, BC NDP Premier John Horgan has officially adopted the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, which gives hereditary chiefs the right to evict the pipeline company. And yet, Horgan maintains that the project should go through. We thus have a situation of competing legal systems, with Suetin and Canadian, with Canada simply so far ignoring the existence of the opposing system, even though our laws recognize it. What we also have is an opportunity for what Justin Trudeau promised would be a nation-to-nation -nation relationship. For all the tensions it has caused, it could yet become the beginning of a meaningful conciliation between Canada and the peoples it is still trying to extinguish to make way for itself. Horgan will soon be traveling through northern BC, but he has refused to meet with Wet'suwet'en chiefs. 
it is conceivable that the RCMP will be using potentially lethal force. Yeah, so there's a there's one very small um, piece of this I want to add to it. it. It has to do with sort of how the RCMP and, and the Canadian uh, Canadian sort of apparatus is, is a blocking uh, access, and then who it's giving access to. I think are actually two two parts of this story. And it's funny. I was I was trying to pull this up, and I found actually an article that you wrote, Emma, uh, about some of the complaints being filed about RCMP blocking uh, different access um, earlier this week. And and it's striking that that this story of, of 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 access being blocked and this is like you know and this was I believe they are still claiming that anyone can go through. I think the RCMP is still claiming anyone can go through, and yet this is not the lived experience of people who have been trying to get there. Um, and and I know for and I know there's a couple even some media that was that was sort of blocked uh, at different times, and then and then at the same time as they're doing this, you know, at the same time as they're as they're sort of you know at least ensuring that and this is similar tactics that it was used i believe in september um when when the the first raid occurred that they sort of stopped starting off access you started hearing about different news outlets not being able to be there and yet while they're doing this the one person they let through within half an hour was a rebel news reporter rebel news yeah Wow. They let him in, and he goes in, and he basically he goes in, and then releases like he's one of the two people they let in. He was, he was like, like, and then he writes a whole thing about how these these hereditary chiefs are actually foreign funded, you know, you know, like fake nations. That's basically. extremely disturbing. Yeah, it's like it's if you're the RCMP and you're you're trying to sort of not. You know, you're trying to, you know, in any way, and if you're making any claims that you're trying to, like, tone down the situation. Yeah, let's just let in the hack journalists. Yeah. Well, it's also hilarious because there's one guy who I talked to who lives in that territory. His wife is Wet'suwet'en. He's, like, adopted into the community, therefore, because of it. And they were like, mm, you're a hideout. You're not allowed in. <laughs> like, <laughs> right. Like, yeah. seriously? Yeah. Like, like you're going to let the, the guy from the rebel from Edmonton is, like... A very white person, yeah, who clearly like has no tie to the areas going in. I don't know. It, yeah. it, there's a lot of hypocrisy. There's well, so exactly, much, yeah. well, and hypocrisy, and then also sort of like, and and like, there if you're blocking other media, like it's you know that's not even a claim, right? And here is, you know, it, it's almost as if you know it, it strikes me as very transparent in the concept of well, it's better for us if we delegitimize these people that we are currently trying to force off their land, and so let's let the one journalist we definitely know is going to go into try to delegitimize. And again, this is, I should point out, I am actually probably would go, not as far as saying Rebel News is journalism. However, uh, that's how I'm sure they present themselves at the time. Um, the, you know, to let that one person go in is seems very much like a, well, we want to discredit these people. Let's put in the person who will discredit them. They'll tell a story that we want to be told. And it's a little like as, as when you're trying, when you're trying to present yourself as, you know, and the RCMP, you know, was created to 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 police, you know, indigenous lands, and so there's a level of like, you know, this is who we are, royal here. colonial. Yeah, you know, like so there's a level of this is who we are in this in, the, in this story as well. But you know, it strikes me as you know as this goes forward, the arguments for the quote unquote rule of law become weaker and weaker as the as the as those who are theoretically upholding the law choose to do so in a way that is so transparently one sided. And, you know, if you're going to like, you know, if you're and it's, you know, whether or not you whether whatever the the outcome of this new standoff is, uh, it is it is striking at least to me that this is that this is sort of the tack that they've decided to take. And I think it has to be noted that that is the sort of direction that we've decided that we're going to go. Um, 
It, uh, it should be noted, the, the RCMP's explanation for not letting people through was that it was a communications mistake, basically, that they sent out this press release and somehow that press release didn't get to the people who were actually doing the blocking. Now, the problem is that the people who were actually there who got blocked said that they offered to show them the press release. They said, you know, you could just call up to the, the main office and they'll get, bring out a press release for you, but we're allowed through. Right. And they kind of described this willful lack of information. Right. And so um, I think personally, I've been seeing a lot of people kind of dismiss this story right. and go, oh, this again, you know. Yeah. Um, and it's also maybe easier to ignore because it's complicated. Yeah. It forces a lot of uncomfortable questions. Um, but I think that's all the more reason that we should be delving into it, right? Like, yeah. Yeah. If, yeah. There's there's enough things here that people sort of give me, hey, it's, 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 you're right. It's, it's happened. It's, it's, it's happening again. And so there's a level of like, oh, this, you know, this again is a way I can ignore, ignore this. But again, and I think you're right. It, it totally makes you. You know, the, to work through this is difficult and messy and, you know, ask some very fundamental questions about, about what, what a nation-to-nation -nation relationship looks like. What does a, can, a Canada that responds to UNDRIP look like? You know, what does, uh, you know, what, what are responsibilities in, in, in any of these cases? And, and, and you're not going to get, you're not going to get through those answers. It, uh, to me, this is one of those questions where it's like, to ignore it or to say like, ah, uh, yes, this is not, uh, this is not a, a huge story or not a story to cover or not a story to pay attention to is basically an acceptance of the status quo, right? It's an acceptance that, okay, well, what happened last time will happen again, which is the RCMP will come in and kick these people off their hereditary lands and then, and then we will continue building this, this, this natural gas pipeline is, the, is what you're accepting if you're not willing to engage and in, in actually try to understand what any other version of the future looks like. Because we're not currently talking about what any other version of the future looks like. The only future that our leaders are, are putting forward is this pipeline will get built. Yes, no one can do the work of thinking for you. Yeah. And yet many of us still wish to simply accept the stories we're told. <laughs> Um, and so we're, we're coming up to the music break. So let's go to a, to go to a music break uh, in half a second. We're going to come back uh, with a, a story about uh, the, the story of the financial uh, news of the week uh, with BlackRock um, and what it means for Alberta and then into, into, some, into whether or not BC, whether or not the Australian fires should, are, are going to, we should be scared about them here in Canada and also the culture and climate uh, are, and how they intersect. So those three stories, hopefully all jam-packed into the middle segment. If not, we'll maybe push one to the last. Let's go to a music break. The Green Majority is entirely listener-supported. Our goal to reach minimum solvency is to raise $300 a month. If you enjoy the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com for as little as $1. And welcome back to the Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM, the sound of your city, here in Hart House on the UFT campus in Toronto, or in one of our appreciated radio syndicate partners across Canada, or on the podcast at greenmajority.ca. And we are continuing to talk about the environment, as we always do. <laughs> Shocker! We're back with more environmental news. Yes. We considered sports briefly, but you know the the the, the cheating scandal in baseball right now is uh, is too complicated to get into. Couldn't get into it. Not yeah. enough teams with green jerseys either. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Very <laughs> few, honestly. That's a significant issue. <clears throat> and uh, so now uh, we're going to turn to our financial overlords. Yeah, great. Uh, BlackRock Incorporated, the world's largest asset manager, with almost $7 trillion under its wing, is declaring that it will divest from projects that carry too much climate-related risk. 
CEO Larry Fink uh, wrote an annual letter to executives saying, quote, Climate change has become a defining factor in companies' long-term prospects. Awareness is rapidly changing, and I believe we are on the edge of a fundamental reshaping of finance. They have recently joined um, Climate Action 100 Plus, a group of investment managers with $41 trillion in combined assets, which aims to pressure the world's biggest emitters to reducing their environmental impact and disclose how climate change will affect their business. Fortune.com points out that protesters often follow Larry Fink to his speeches and galas. As Al Gore told the Financial Times last month, quote, I think the large passive managers <clears throat> have a real difficult decision to make. Do they want to continue to finance the destruction of human civilization or not? Yeah, so Mr. Fink, uh, for once perhaps going against uh, the definition of his name, um, which, which, in case you know, Fink means a unpleasant or contemptible person. Didn't uh, know that. Yeah, fun fact. Okay. It's the news of the day. It's like a very 50s insult, right? Oh, yeah, super yeah. insult. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You all mean one. Mr. Fink. Yeah. So you can take that, take that or leave it. Um, is So I, I these kinds of stories, I think, are always end up being, in my mind, complicated enough that I never feel super comfortable um, speaking on it until I've asked someone who knows more than me. And so I did that. And, um, and, and in the conversation was quite interesting because it came to down to the point that the last line you have there, second last line, implies something that I think is not clear to most people who don't follow financial news, which is the idea of, that, of being a passive, uh, passive manager versus uh, as, a, as an asset manager. And that's, that, that's a big part of this story. Because basically, when you're a passive manager, most of what you're doing is uh, is is sort of creating these larger groupings of of of, of stocks, and you're trying to, you're trying to match the market. You're sort of following the market. You're not really you're not choosing any individual thing to, to invest in. You're not choosing like okay, this particular thing we're going to put our money here. You're sort of following. You're creating these sort of larger groupings of stocks that you're sort of and, 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 and you're sort of following the trends basically. And and so for a for, and so the question really here. The question's really been asked uh, for the last. So the last three years, uh, this uh, Larry Fink has come out with something like this. Uh, you know, a couple years ago, he came out saying that like you're basically with, with a rule that was like your um, your company should be doing at least something positive for us to for us to like you basically, and and then and then last year he came out with a little bit more of a of a specific things that he'd be looking at in regards to risk mitigation surrounding um, ESG, which is environmental, social, and governance reporting. Uh, and so he was sort of like, all right, these are the metrics that we're going to be paying attention to uh, to to pay attention to your to your work. And then this year it's this. And so what's interesting there is that is a clear line of, of caring, right? It's not like this is a one-stop thought. It's not like he's thought about it today and is, might get, not give about it tomorrow. This is three years of, 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 moving, of moving the dial. However, at the same time, um, uh, a, uh, it was pointed out to me that after, the first, after that first decree of that you have to be doing something decent, uh, BlackRock went out, uh, a, a, a Saudi Arabian uh, owned, you know, uh, owned company opened a bond and BlackRock purchased a large portion of it. And Larry Fink came out and said, we wanted to get more of that, but we just couldn't, we, you know, we, we couldn't get more of that. And this was after the Khashoggi murder. So, you know, there's a level of like, how much do you believe uh, this is going to change their investment strategy um, because of sort of their, their, their history of existing? 
Um, now, at the same time, I think it's valuable to note that it is both um, a uh, it is both a important fact that this is not once. You know, this is like three years, and this in like so next year you might see another thing, right? It, like they, they and this time this time it's sort of implied that they might be taking a little more active action, and that's so, but but like but that would require a change in their business, really. And and so that's an interesting sort of sort of line. And other other fact is like when you run when you own seven billion trillion dollars of things, that means you actually have a voting share in most companies in the United States. And and it means that you like like anything you say will have impact almost no matter what, just because you are so big. And so the fact that they're saying this is important and does matter. Um, but it also ties into a, a story that, that Emma, that you wrote earlier, um, and I think is also a thing that we talk on the show a bunch, which is this concept that as more and more and more finance places across the world start being taking climate change into impact, the question has to become how much more dangerous or how dangerous is all of this coming to Alberta and, 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 and Canadian's oil, oil interests. And, and so I'm wondering if you have a, have a thought on that. I have a lot. <laughs> right. I guess, um, I mean, there's a whole separate discussion that I think is being had in climate circles about what role we want business to play oh, yeah. in a climate movement, especially given like the overlap between, you know, capitalism and consumption and, and the impact that has. But the other side of this is that politics right now is failing to properly address the climate crisis. And it seems like now business in the financial world is making an attempt of sorts. And so it's an interesting thing to think about. But moreover, like we are seeing markets change, demand curves bend in response to the climate movement. One of the things that I wrote about was the fact that, you know, oil demand was forecast to keep rising to like the 2040s, the 2050s. Now the most recent forecasts, even like conservative ones, are forecasting that that decline or plateau will happen a lot sooner. Like we're talking next decade. Wow. Um, some of the earliest forecasts are like three years away, you know, and that's like taking into account the fact that renewable resources are so cheap now. Mm -hmm. um, the fact that like governments are signaling climate policy that will force change on behalf of businesses. So, I mean, I've been like screaming this for years, so I'm happy that other people <laughs> are hearing it, but climate change is a business story. It yeah. really is. Yeah. And so, um, it's hard to predict these things as well. Like a demand going down does not mean that oil collapses in right. in a decade. Mm -hmm. um, but it certainly it certainly does a number of things though. Like if demand actually decreased, you know, a lot of these uh, a lot of these oil companies, as I said previously on the show, um, these these oil companies are based on futures and, and how much reserves they have. And so if suddenly it's like if, if the moment that you start the moment the market starts getting wary that some of these reserves that oil companies have uh, will not be get used, their market, the, the value of this company decreases. Right, right. It's, yeah. And, and I mean, it's also an issue of the value that oil has, right? Like if oil is not really going to be going above like 70 barrel, then like it doesn't really make sense to open a new mine. Right. Um, and then we're not getting the emissions from that mine. Right. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Especially in a moment where we exist right now in a place where Canada is really pushing a whole bunch of infrastructure spending on the presumption of of a price of oil that that it'll make it valuable. And if you yeah, you see peak oil in the next couple of years, even the next five, you know, by the time we finish building some of these things, it will already be useless. And and where do we stand then? 
the yeah it's it's a i don't know, it, it, to me the, the what's been interesting as you've noted is that it's really felt like that the failure in 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 policy has has either either this is when it would have happened anyways in business or or it's just that business has realized that like something else has to change like there are more and more people who are coming what's interesting about larry fink as a, as a random aside is that he actually started blackrock so he's just it's been in his life he has gone from like a person to guy who runs a seven trillion dollar asset management fund which i think in some way gives him a little more uh freedom to 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 move and to and to be a, to to have his own positions and to push forward his own his own his own arguments because he's not sort of as behold, because he did, he built this whole company it's not like he's a new CEO coming into something and trying to like you know shake things up it's like he did all of this and so I think it's an interesting sort of interesting sort of place to be in and and you know it's and it's all it's one of many right it's it's there's this there's the story of you know of of Sweden not wanting to not wanting to buy bonds in Alberta. There's the stories of uh, of the European banks divesting from from oil sands. You know, there's it's a lot of these stories of external financial factors starting to to really imply that this could be a dangerous road for for Alberta. Did you get anything from that story that sort of stuck out to you uh, in regards to sort of what kind of risks are, or exist for Alberta beyond that? Yeah, maybe not so much risks as like if we're if we're talking optimistically, if we're right. telling a hopeful story, opportunity. Right. Um, oil is not the only thing that can come out of the oil sands. I was talking to this really cool analyst at the Pembina Institute named Benjamin Israel, and he said that um, you know he he made a point that's been made before that you know hydrogen fuel can come out of the oil sands. Um, if we're talking about a just transition. There are opportunities there. It's just that we have to be prepping them now. So, right. for instance, like this year, um, the price forecasts for oil are like slightly better, and so that was kind of a point of celebration for uh, for some folks. And of course, demand is at least rising for a little while longer. Mm. So we can celebrate that, and you can go, "Oh, great, recession's ending, woo!" Or we can slow down, as you were saying, <laughs> and think about what happens next. A few companies have like invested in solar or invested in wind. What about actually reckoning with what a green transition is going to mean for you, for your workers? Um, and provincial and federal governments can help with that, right? It's just like make this the year that you think about it because mm. otherwise we're not really going to have a shot <laughs> being right. ready before the demand curve starts to fall. Right, yeah. And and, and then, yeah, and have that be part of the plan. Um, so to, let's move on to the, the psycholo- psychology of inaction. So, uh, Emma McIntosh, uh, you published a piece for the National Observer on the 7th, co-written with Carl Mayer, called The Psychology of Inaction on Climate Change. It uh, mostly regards the wildfires ongoing in Australia and the huge fires in BC and Alberta over the past few years, noting that Canada's boreal forests could be changing drastically over the coming decades as a result of hotter, drier, and windier conditions brought on by climate change. You write, quote, research out of the University of Victoria and Environment Climate Change Canada last year showed that human-caused climate change made the wildfires in B.C. in 2017 ignite an area that was seven, <clears throat> 7 to 11 times larger than what would be expected without human influence on the climate. Yeah, so, man, I, the, the 7 to 11 times t- higher was... From, I, like I, I know I shouldn't be surprised by climate things anymore, and yet that still <laughs> surprised me. I mean, there's a lot to be scared of in that study. There's like, um, there's also the finding that you know the boreal forest is permanently changing because mm. of wildfires. There's like a natural cycle 
of wildfire that is natural for the boreal forest and for most forests. But you expect that things will regenerate and things will come back, and that can actually be a carbon sink that kind of balances things mm -hmm. out. The problem is when these big mega fires are happening way more often, things don't get the chance to regenerate and right. they just burn again. Right. So, um, yeah, it's, it's not great. It's not great. <laughs> it's scary. I think um, wildfire is one of the things from the climate crisis that keeps me up at night. I did like a, a really, really long project on this when I was still at the Toronto Star in the spring. And uh, I watched a lot of videos of fire tornadoes, which are a thing that can happen. Oh, yeah. One happened in Australia. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, and I guess that's one of those ones where it's kind of too late to prevent it. Right. And so um, we have to act to reduce emissions so it doesn't get worse. Mm -hmm. It will get worse a, a little bit, but we have to act. But we also have to just kind of get ready for a, a life that includes more fire. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's it, yeah. It's quite the and it, it. I find it interesting that fire particularly has a particular psychological impact on people. Like I do think that there's as 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 common as as much as very extreme cold uh, weather is as much a part of 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 extreme weather that can be influenced by climate change as extreme heat, hot weather. I think there's a metaphorical resonance that does actually change how people see this. Like I do think Australian, the Australia wildfires seemingly actually raised more of people's like visions of, of what climate change is because of the fact that it was actually hotter rather than, you know, some of these other types of storms. Like I think there's a metaphorical thing that happens in our brain. It's definitely a thing, um, anecdotally at least. Like Banff, for instance. So the, the town of Banff in Banff National Park is actually one of the most like fire smart communities I've been able to find. Um, and like fire smart is a literal program, but you know, they're <laughs> quite like smart about fires. Right. And so they didn't have a lot of buy-in from the community for a long time when they were trying to implement mm -hmm. this. You know, you have, like swapping out flammable roofs for things that are less flammable, or like flammable trees for stuff that's less flammable um, until a wildfire got really close, like right. really, really close. And it scared people and it made them realize that it was there, you know, yeah. that it's not an abstract threat. It's in your backyard or it's choking you with smoke. It's less than a kilometer away. Um, and so that was really powerful. And now they've transformed a lot. They're not perfect, but right. they've come a really long way in just a decade. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's fat. Like that kind of, that kind of thing is, is super fascinating to me. Um, but let's, let, let's keep our actual good being on time roughly for music breaks. And so, uh, let's go to another music break and then we'll come back with our last two stories. I just wanted to say, I think the word you were looking for was cognitive dissonance. Uh, we're going to listen to, uh, Tanya Tagak. This is Snowblind. <laughs> That is a gorgeous, gorgeous song from Tanya Tagak. And uh, this is The Green Majority, continuing. And we're going to discuss, uh, as we have been a little bit, the um, economic viability of creating fossil fuel products uh, from the oil sands, beginning uh, or now turning to the federal government's decision uh, on the Tech Frontier Mine, uh, which would be the largest tar sands mine ever built. And it is a decision that is expected any day now. Uh, it would be twice the size of the city of Vancouver, and it would produce new tar sands oil all the way until 2067. 
As Zepro Berman pointed out for The Guardian last month, it would add six megatons of carbon pollution every year. It would greatly threaten biodiversity. Uh, there are already 131 megatons per year in approved projects waiting to be constructed. And, quote, governments are planning to produce twice as much fossil fuels than the world can safely burn. Put simply, while the world was focused on plans to reduce emissions, the oil and gas industry has been busy planning a dramatic expansion in Canada and around the world. Our new Environment Minister, Jonathan Wilkinson, has also said that he doesn't want to reduce production, but to reduce emissions per barrel of oil. Wilkinson told the Globe and Mail, quote, I can't prejudge the decision of the federal cabinet, but what I can tell you is that the issue around the greenhouse gases associated with that project will be very much relevant to the decision that cabinet will take. To highlight the opposing positions on the mine, Sharon J. Riley compiled a list of important considerations last month for the narwhal. She writes that Alberta Premier Jason Kenney believes uh, that, quote, if this project does not proceed, it would be a clear indication that there is no way forward for this country's largest natural resource. He is, of course, towing the line that Canadian unity is predicated upon tar sands development. But Riley also notes that even the company proposing the mine is not certain if it, will be, if it will be commercially viable anyway, which means it might not be built even if it is approved. It will also remove 3,000 hectares of old-growth forests, disturb 14,000 hectares of wetlands, and kill 3,000 hectares of peatland, which is an important carbon sink. If we keep our Paris pledges, this one mine alone would account for up to 4% of Canada's total allowable emissions in 2050. The company had gotten approval from all local indigenous groups, but Athabasca Chipewyan chief Alan Adam has become displeased and is having second thoughts, and there were many Canadian indigenous youth protesting the mine at COP25 last month. On top of this, the economic viability of the mine is predicated on a wildly optimistic oil price of up to almost double what it is now the highest estimate being $115 American per barrel, and yet climate action around the world uh, is likely to, to reduce the price of oil, which could strand Albertan production since other oil states like Saudi Arabia can produce much more cheaply. cheaply. As Berman concludes, quote, by rejecting the tech mega mine, uh, the Canadian government could signal that it does represent the two-thirds of Canadians who voted for increased action against climate breakdown. It could launch a serious program to help the oil and gas workers of Alberta, the people who are out of work and need a future to believe in, by redirecting the many billions of dollars for pipelines and fossil fuel infrastructure into diversifying and decarbonizing Alberta's economy. Yeah. So, and, and this has been one of those, I feel like tech is a story that we actually have not covered as much on the show as I would have, as, as I imagined, in part just because it keeps, it's, it's again, one of these examples of these long infrastructure projects that comes up in the news every once in a while, uh, and, you know, and there's a and there's a pretty strong, you know, voice against it and sort of shows up for a bit and then it vanishes into the bureaucracy of, of, of the world and then it comes back again at some sort of point. Yeah, well, it's just sitting there waiting to be... Yeah, with. theoretically approved or not. Yeah, and it's, what's incredible about this is that it, it, like, this is an example as as you mentioned earlier, Emma, about um, something that you know to be it, it would be operational until twenty sixty seven, you know, and 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 you're looking at yeah at working at potentially having peak oil in the next ten years, you know, this is and even if not, you know, that's still that means this thing is still even if it's in the next fifteen years, you're still looking at thirty years after peak oil that you have this that you have this expansion. Well, well you, if sorry. I was sorry, mm -hmm. um, if I were 
the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers mm-hmm. or uh, Jason Kenney's War Room or an oil company, what I would probably tell you right now is that just because demand is going down doesn't mean that there's no demand. Right. And there, there is also this like weird thing that happens when demand goes down and a price drops in response to that. There's then an incentive to keep using that thing because, hey, look, it's really cheap. So, I mean, we don't we don't know what's going to happen exactly. But um, at the same time, yeah, like tech is kind of this weird thing that's like microcosmic of the broader choice that the government has to make. It's like, can we do this? Should we do this because we can probably get away with it? Mm. Um, or should we start doing the right thing according to the other side? and just start moving away from this because that's where we're going long-term anyways. Yeah, it really is the, you know, I love the quote that no matter what we decide, the carbon emissions will be a big part of it. And it's like, I'd like to, I'd like to understand that explanation <laughs> if they decide to let it go, you know, to prove it. You know, like, we've decided that we don't care. Is that the decision you're making? Like, there's a level of, like, you know, in the same way that they said that they really paid attention to the carbon emissions when they when they approved the, the, the purchase, purchasing of the pipeline. You can't just, if you're the level of government, you can't just keep saying, I, we've thought about the carbon and then doing the thing that emits more carbon. I personally am also thinking about the carbon. Yeah. Um, but, I, I mean, we are going to see, hopefully this year, more of an idea of what Canada's carbon budget looks like. There is a way to have Tech Frontier begin operating and continue operating and for us still to get to net zero by 2050. It just means that insane radical change is going to happen, happen like everywhere else. Right. And so um, we just got to sort that out and figure out our priorities. Is, yeah. is that the best use of our carbon budget? Maybe not. Yeah, and I think that that kind of accounting is actually, I think, is what currently is vastly missing, I think, from the, from the federal government's messaging. Right, like the federal government currently has done absolutely an absolutely atrocious job in convincing anyone that they are intending on actually taking carbon climate change more seriously than their slow increase of uh, of of um, of their carbon present carbon. Um, in that, like, there's no word, there's no conversation they're having about a real carbon budget, right? Like, the, the Canada, you know, currently has not said we plan to emit this much carbon, and this is the you know the step. Th- Ways down, and the more you look at the ever-growing gap between, say, our Paris Agreement uh, commitments and um, and our current plan, if we're going to believe you, like if you're going to get Canadians on side to any of these major infrastructure projects that include tar sands expansion, you have to explain what else is happening. And and right now they're just they're not right. We're just getting this sort of we've thought about it, we promise we've thought about it, but we're still doing the thing that implies we haven't really thought about it. And unfortunately, we're just missing the last 10 minutes of the show this week. It uh, slipped out of our hands. But rest assured, we did discuss the loss of certain cultural festivals uh, and traditions due to the loss of recurring ice every year and the need to develop new ones. And that does it for the Green Majority this week. Peace. (laughs) 